Thank you, friends. Good morning. It's so good to see you. I know it's a holiday weekend. A lot of folks are traveling. I'm so glad that you are here. Um, this week and next week just sort of felt prompted to speak more from the Old Testament lectionary uh, text. So this morning we're going to look at an Elijah story and Elisha next week. First uh, Kings chapter 18, if you have your Bibles. And we're going to read verses 20 through 21 and then skip to verses 30 through 39. A little bit of a lengthy reading, but uh, hang with me here. This is one of those great, great stories, I think, of the Old Testament. And the text says, Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets number 450. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire will indeed be God. All the people answered, well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. Then call on the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So they took the bull that was given them, prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying out, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no answer. They limped about the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, surely he is a god. Either he is meditating, or perhaps has wandered away, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Then they cried aloud, as was their custom. And they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out over them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no answer, and no response. Then Elijah said to all the people, come closer to me. And all the people came closer to him. First, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to contain two measures of seed. Next, he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. Again, he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, the prophet Elijah came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your bidding. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord indeed is God. 
The Lord indeed is God. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, um, in the spirit of Elijah's short and simple prayer, uh, we trust you, we believe you, and we ask today that you would meet with us. We have come and built an altar here. Uh, We have come and uh, dug a trench. We have prepared this space, knowing that there is nothing more for us to do. We can't make anything happen, that we can't um, coerce you or twist your arm into doing anything, knowing also that's just just not necessary, Lord. We just want to create space now for you to work. So we wait on you, Spirit. We ask for your fire to to fall on us. We ask that you would consume us. We ask that you would um, envelop us in your love and speak to us by your word. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. These Old Testament stories, these prophet stories, which I love, are quirky and wonderful. Um, Something this week, uh, I really felt like I was seeing some things in this text I'd never seen before. It's been so long since I've thought about it. But I think the thing that maybe somehow struck me the most was just this image of the prophets of Baal, who we know a little bit about their religion. Uh, Baal worship was a fertility cult, so it's very sexual in practice uh, because the idea is you're trying to get this particular God uh, to essentially to, uh, to bring forth good soil and fruit and all of that. So it's a fertility cult and they uh, were despised by the Israelites. They often feuded and they're known apparently for this kind of shamanistic kind of worship where they work themselves up into a state. And we see that when it comes time for this showdown between Elijah and the prophets, and both of them are calling on their God to see who the true one is, when there is no response from Baal and nothing's happening, they just get louder. They get louder and louder. Uh, The quiet just causes them to go into more and more of a frenzy. They sweat more. They bleed more. They cut themselves with stones in this elaborate display, trying to somehow force the hand of Baal to do something miraculous for them. And on one hand, I think when we read a text like that, that seems like something that's so ancient and far removed from our world that just seems culturally like really strange. And yet at the same time, there's something in the manic nature of the prophets of Baal that I find far more familiar than I want to admit. (laughs) Something about that manic determination to, to make something happen, to try to force God to do something to try to coerce God to do something. If nothing's happening, then I'm going to make something happen. And if still nothing's happening, then I'm going to pretend that something's happening and make it look as if something's happening. I mean, there's something about that that is, I feel like is deeply ingrained in me in some ways. So I I thought about this in context of my own story a little bit. I don't know how, if I've gone back this far much, so forgive me. I don't mean to make this group therapy like again, but you'll get a sense of, a little bit of a sense of me. Uh, You know, I always self-identify as a hillbilly Pentecostal, which I love my tradition and heritage, and I love the Spirit and believe in walking the Spirit, and I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in all the stuff. I believe in Spirit things. Love all that, and love even the, the, the place for, like, emotion. I think all that can be, like, very healthy. I can just say, like, in my context, somehow, and I don't think my parents really taught me this, but there was something from, like, the earliest stages of my own faith development that was just so, that was so manic, that, that did feel so... Um, there was so much compulsion going on. Um, I was thinking about when I was in the seventh grade, 
I was on, well, for one thing, I remember carrying a book every day to school. A big, a famous charismatic pastor at the time had written a book on wisdom that was like this thick, and I would carry that to school, not trying to look pious. Like, whenever there was like a break or recess or something, like, I really read the book because I thought like that's what I should do. The thing I really can't explain, and this is going to be really funny for some of you because, like, some Tulsa folks are going to know who this person is, and you're going you're gonna to see just how funny this really is, especially for like a 12-year-old. But somehow when I was 12, I got really fixated on the televangelist Morris Sorello. Does anybody remember Morris Sorello? Yeah? Like, like four of you? Like, okay. Morris Sorello, man. If you heard him, you'd remember, I think. I mean, had this, an interesting voice. And I'm not even dissing on Morris uh, Sorello, but he had like this TV show. It was like the Believer's something, an hour of something or another. And... I had this hour of power, was that it? I, I, had to, I had this sense somehow. Again, no one told me this. My parents didn't even listen to Morris Cirillo. But I thought, God speaks to Morris Cirillo. God uh, uses Morris Cirillo. And so I was determined. I feel like every night I need to be in front of the TV in my room at 7 o'clock to watch Morris Cirillo and like fully participate in the program. So whatever else I was doing, I'd be out playing pickup basketball or something. I would get back to watch TV by 7, and I'd be there like ready. I would take notes. I ordered his books on miracles. I remember I had a giant like tape cassette teaching on winning the battle of your mind. I'm in the seventh grade. I was so like, this, and I was just, I was super intense about all this. And this is a really embarrassing story. I don't, I'm not precisely sure why I'm sharing it, but I remember once in particular that I was watching the show and it was like 20 minutes of the program and I really need to go to the bathroom. But I thought, God's speaking. I can't miss anything that God's going to say through Brother Cirillo. So I ended up unintentionally going to the bathroom in my pants because I felt legalistically like I, it would be wrong to like step away and miss something potentially that God might be saying. So like, this is where I come from. I, I, I had a, I had a, the, you know the really embarrassing thing about this story that I, I would say I said up in the seventh grade was it true? That was actually two weeks ago. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> I was watching Brother Sorello and I just thought I don't want to miss it. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> so much shame. <laughs> I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> The other thing I remember about that era is that I felt like I need to do things to prove myself to God, like my own version of cutting myself with stones like this. I need to like make sure I'm bleeding a little um, so that he'll like me. So if anything was, was like too much fun, I had the old Nintendo in those days, which was awesome. And if anybody remembers this, the greatest thing that ever happened in Nintendo is for me as a basketball person was double dribble. And I would play double dribble the basketball game for hours upon end. And we'd get to like the last two minutes of the game when the score was close and I was really into it. And then I'd turn the power off because I felt like I was enjoying it too much. And like I just needed, and really it was just like, it'd be this just obsessive preoccupation with whether or not my sins were forgiven, whether or not, you know, I'd confessed since the last, what, I don't even know what I'd, I didn't understand anything enough to do anything too much wrong, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know how any of that worked. I'm not sure what I was so sorry about. But, I mean, it was just this very, like, that's kind of so much what I live into. And I feel like that followed me around in different forms, even as I got older. And, of course, you know, I'm not doing quite the same things, but my sense of, of, of even my prayer life was always so, I was so preoccupied with getting the formula right, trying to pray the right, trying to make sure I just did everything right. I remember when I was um, 19 taking a, a religious education class in college. It wasn't real theological, but it was a sweet lady, Southern Baptist lady, and she did, I know, and clearly well-intentioned, 
but she did a whole teaching on like unbiblical things that we pray, that we shouldn't pray anymore because it's just not the biblical way to pray, which, you know, I'm sure was supposed to be like super helpful, but it only paralyzed me. You know, it would be, and off the top of my head, like I remember things like, it's stuff like, don't pray God be with the missionaries because God is already with the missionaries. But now the way that translated for me, though, is that I already felt like it was hard for me to pray. So I'd be trying to pray, and I'd think of a missionary, and I'd be praying for them. And I'd say, God be with Sister Canes. Oh, I'm so sorry. You're already with the missionaries. I didn't mean, I didn't mean to pray it wrong. And we get, like, super angsty about this, you know, that, like, I'm not praying the right thing. Or, and I'm even being, I remember even being especially preoccupied because all my life was consumed with matters of sin and forgiveness. Have I prayed the right sins of forgiveness? Somehow I got it in my head that I needed to specifically ask for the blood of Jesus to cleanse my sins. And I think, man, I, I remember praying for forgiveness for that, but I don't think I specifically said, may the blood of Jesus cleanse me of that sin. So has the blood of Jesus cleansed me of my sin. What you're hearing in things like, oh, dear God, you need therapy. And I'm like, yeah, come on. Like, what do you, what do you think? Um, but I mean, like, and in some ways, of course, that seems distant. And yet I still feel like I have so many remnants of that in me. I still feel like that there's a part of me that always thinks that if I can find the right formula, if I can fast enough, pray the proper prayer, do the right ritual, whatever, that so long as I do it right, then somehow God is obligated to work or respond in a certain way. I still also have... So it becomes interesting because what happens is trying to worship Jesus in the way that you worship Baal. <laughs> so it's like worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a Baal-like manner. Another thing that for me feels very familiar is the way that as it got quieter and their God was not responding, they get louder and louder. That feels like me too. <laughs> if I don't feel like God is responding and I don't feel like things are moving forward, well, maybe if I can just work things up to a certain point. So many of us learn to do church that way. And truthfully, not even just like in charismatic culture, that's pretty broad now. This sense that like, so long as we can get the service to a certain emotional place, that then somehow, think that we're, you know, and, and it becomes a sense of like wanting, needing to make things happen. As the, the real truth is, there's something that's very appealing about that kind of worship. There's a reason why we're still drawn to like worshiping the Baals, because like a God that you can shape with your hands is a God that you can control. Who doesn't want to be able to say abacadabra, <laughs> And get the rabbit to jump out of the hat, right? Who doesn't want it? I want it to be up to me. I want to click my heels together. And if I wish just right, then I can change the weather. Or if I say it or confess it just right, I can change or influence the actions of other people around me that I want to change. I don't want to be powerless. I want to control God and I want to control people. Thank you for that. <laughs> I love this sister because she's so honest and that always makes it. It's like, you just like, you, I, I want to be in control. Everybody wants to be in control, which is why it's a mistake when we read texts like this and be like, oh, silly idol worshipers. Can you imagine that people do that? We do it all the time. And we do it with all sorts of different gods. Sometimes we worship the actual God in a Baal-like way. Sometimes I think, and I, I think this is equally important, like not just kind of in a religious sense about some kind of like religious zeal. I think many of us have gods that we worship that cause us to be compulsive in some way. I, you know, I just become more and more convinced that at the heart of sin really is always addiction and compulsion. 
you know, things that we think are going to set us free, but they actually enslave us. And, and we, because we, we feel compelled, there's certain things that we just, we really, it's like we don't have a choice. We feel like we have to do it. That kind of living in that kind of drivenness, living under that kind of compulsion is never the work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's slavery and it's bondage. But it doesn't always feel like that because especially in the moment where we still have a bit of an illusion that maybe we are in control. <laughs> you know, clearly the prophets of Baal think that their God is going to work. Who's to say that, uh, that things didn't actually happen? I think most of the time with false prophets in the Old Testament, there was some kind of power. Maybe there were other times where they would ask for things and they would do the rain dance or whatever and stuff really happened. Clearly they, they expect something's going to happen. We see that uh, Pharaoh's magicians. And I don't want to get too far into all that. I, I, but but this, this, nature, this notion of manic spirituality where everything's frenzied and everything's chaotic and you're always living and, with this kind of whatever, I just feel like it, 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 it so conspires against the kind of life that we see embodied here in Elijah. I mean, so after they're cutting themselves with stones and bleeding and sweating... It's so beautiful then the contrast with Elijah who prays a simple prayer that doesn't take a minute out loud to pray. A handful of words. And then he sits back and he waits for God to do the things that only God can do. There's not a sense of, of attempting to coerce. There's not any kind of an attempt to control. If God doesn't respond in the way that we want or the way that we think he ought to, it's not going to change anything for us to wish harder, think harder, Try to believe more perfectly. Boy, that gets tricky, doesn't it? When you're trying to, make, trying to discern whether or not you've got the proper amount of faith for something. Maybe that's the trouble is I don't have enough faith. My faith is at a 30%. But if I could get my faith level up, if I could get my faith power from 30% to 70%, then maybe God would be obligated to respond. Do you see how like at the heart of all that is a need to control things? Is a desire to control there's so I think there's so there's something of that in most all of us, and life in the spirit I believe is always the the long weaning off of that to get to come to a place of simple trust uh, to, to to not have to be in control to not feel the need to try to control God to not feel the need to control others. Oh, how much pain do we have in our lives? Because we can't open up our hands and just trust, okay, God, God's going to have to do the things that only God can do. But in the meantime, I can't change all of my circumstances. There are many of them I cannot change. I can't change the people around me. I can't change anybody's behavior. So much is stress and pressure that comes from feeling like we need somehow to control in that way. And it's just, it's just not the way of the kingdom. We didn't look at it at all, but I'll just drive by it really quick. The gospel text for this morning, actually, is the one where the Roman centurion comes to Jesus. And he says, my daughter is sick. And he, he, he comes and it appears that he wants to get Jesus to come and heal his daughter, lay hands on her like everyone else. But he tells the Lord, like, oh, no, I don't need you to come. I'm a person who has people underneath me, and I know how it works. All I have to do is speak a word, and they'll... Obey, they'll do what I say. If you could just speak a word. And Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion and says, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. This simple faith, this simple trust that God will, that God will move, that God will work, th that for me is so opposite of, of that manic thing that I'm so inclined to do. 
I don't know exactly what to do about all this because uh, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of convicted in general that just like this, right now I'm in an especially busy season, so, um, which I think is true. I think it's okay to have busy seasons where I get suspicious of myself is that I'll, I feel like I'm always saying, well, this is going to be a stretch. It's going to be like this. But once I get through with that, then things are going to be, and it never, you know, things never change. <laughs> but I, I, I do feel some conviction a bit like this frenzied pace at which we live that becomes so normal to us really isn't what God has intended. And there's no one that can do anything about that from us, that there has to be some practices, there has to be some ways of carving out some space to just not live at that pace all the time. Because there's, no, there's no room for the Spirit. There's no room for quiet. There's no room for trust. How, how we know this, uh, surprisingly enough, is when things do start to get quiet, then we freak out. We act like we're so, that we hate our schedules, and it's, it's, boy, it's so awful to be so important and needed by people until it gets quiet, and then we really freak out because we realize how addicted we've become to all that. We realize that actually we've been living, sweating, Cutting ourselves, cutting ourselves with stones, you know? It's like we've been living at this manic clip that just doesn't provide space with God. So, like, I've never heard this text treated this way. I hope some of this is going to make some sense. To me, the contrast here, though, and I think this is important, is not to say, so unlike the prophets of Baal, who are trying to work everything up and have a God that can be controlled with, who's been shaped by their hands so they can you know, maneuver this God somehow. That the contrast to that is, so just don't do anything. Just give up and just, just let go, let God, whatever. I don't think that's exactly true either because even in what Elijah does here, there is a certain kind of work that he does, but it's a very different kind of work. The work of the prophets of Baal is to try to um, to, to work something up in kind of an emotional fervor. The work for them is to try to coerce, to try to force God, their God, to work. They're trying to force the circumstances to change. They're trying to make something happen. Elijah does something very different. His work is he digs a trench around the altar. He trusts that God is going to come, and he anticipates that, so he makes space for it. He makes room for it. He has a sense that his God is going to come. So he very quietly and calmly carves out the space for that. Part of what I think is so intriguing about this is, of course, he digs a trench and then he fills it with water, which it's cool when the fire comes and it says, I like that language a lot, that it says that the fire comes and licks up the water in the trenches. Like, that sounds so awesome to me. Like, that, that's, that's great. But you've got to think that, like, when Elijah's doing it at the time, I mean, at least I would be thinking, okay, you want me to dig a trench and fill it with water. How does that help fire to fall and burn? <laughs> Super counterintuitive, which for me also is such a parallel for what life in the Spirit looks like, is that the ways that God will often call us to create space for him don't make a lot of sense to us. We're asked to do these things. We're given these practices that help us to create space for God, and at the time, it doesn't seem like it's working at all. If, if I dig a ditch and fill it with water, how is that going to help fire to fall? Now, of course, what God is going to do is bring a remarkable display of his glory in this. But at the time, we don't know that Elijah necessarily understands that. And we often don't understand what we're doing. We just, we do it out of obedience and we do it out of trust. And unlike the prophets of Baal, it doesn't involve all this flailing. Let me give you an example. So this week, uh, most of our staff was in 
uh, New York City with Bishop Ed for a class, talking a lot about the Eucharist and liturgy, really wonderful things. One of the things I really loved most about the, the week was that every morning we would get together a few minutes before class and we would pray through the, the, just the, the daily office from the Book of Common Prayer. So we do that in the morning and then we do the evening ones together. Handful of prayers. You've got a, 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 a few of those set pieces that are always the same, always some version of reciting the creed. There's always a confession of sin and then the absolution of sin that we pray. We read whatever scriptures are there for the day. We just took a few, a few minutes each morning and then the evening. And I don't know if this will disappoint you. Like There was no demonstrative like fire falling. Uh, there wasn't like a revival that broke out. But I found it interesting just how much is the week of that, doing that every day with my friends, a few minutes in each slot, just how much that reoriented my way of thinking, just how much for me that was the way, and for us, of carving out space for God, just, just creating space, just creating a little bit of room. I think that's our version of digging, ditch, of, of digging the ditches. It's just, just giving God space, just doing something to build an altar. That, that's all. Do, do you see how there's a difference between building an altar and feeling the need to make the fire? <laughs> like, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to, <laughs> we don't have to make the fire happen. We don't have to burn anything. We don't have to, we don't have to force anything. We don't have to coerce anything. It's just a matter of building an altar so that there's space for God to work. Two very, very different things. So it's a certain kind of effort but it's an effort insofar that really we're just creating space so that God is the one who does the work. God is the one who sends the fire. God is the one who always has to do that. It's just not ours to do. So I, I thought about this in terms of even this week when we would pray the confession and absolution. It still moves me so powerfully every time we do that. And we do that often here, not every Sunday, but you know, just pray the corporate confession and then whoever, whoever's up front always speaks Christ's words of forgiveness over us. That just strikes me as so powerful. Because keep in mind my life before, again, I've always lived with such anxiety as to whether or not my sins are forgiven. And the only way I know how to fix that is to pray and hope that in praying the prayer the right way that I'm going to feel assured enough that my sins are forgiven. Do you know how much less work it is to pray the prayer of confession and someone pronounce God's forgiveness and just trust that that's actually true? That instead of needing, I don't, I don't need to get my faith up to 75% that I'm forgiven. I can trust that I'm a Christian. This is going to sound weird to some of you. I can trust that I'm a Christian because the church has told me I'm a Christian. I can trust that I'm forgiven because God has speaking through my brothers and sisters around me God's forgiveness. What a weight off. So instead of me feeling the need to flagellate or flail or do something to get to make myself feel something I don't really feel. To just trust that in simplicity. Oh, imagine that. Oh, so don't have to do the thing that I always did before. Of I remember being at the free throw line and saying, "Have I confessed my last sin?" If the rapture happens in this moment, of course you're going to miss the free throw. <laughs> it's like you know, uh, there's uh, <laughs> missed a lot of free throws that way. <laughs> Still have those moments too. I'm getting ready to bite in this cake. What if it's the last bite of cake? I should eat more faster. Uh, can be very manic in that way too. I need. I just need to suck all the life out of this that's here because you never know. <laughs> Yolo or whatever. I don't know. I believe I just said that. Different ways of, of of expressing this. You know, 
But it's funny how like, like that really would be the opposite, that kind of Epicurean thing of like got to get all the pleasure out of this moment. I do treat every meal like that, honestly. I think that way. I think like this could be my last. You know, what if it's my last shot? <laughs> it sounds like some horrible prom date, you know? <laughs> like this could be the last night before the end of the world. <laughs> it's just very like... <laughs> kind of opposite of like the religious seal but do you see again how like in many ways it's like the same thing and I feel like that's so often what happens like in our culture religious or not everybody kind of lives in that manic place when what in the life that God's calling us to is one with a lot more quiet a lot more simplicity simple trust not having to force anything cooperating with the river of God's grace just just Moving with the flow of God's spirit, relaxing with that, letting God do what God will do, letting people do what people will do. Huge. Being all right with taking a step back and just, I'm going I'm to let happen what has to happen. I'll do what God has put in my hands to do, right? So if God's asked me to dig a ditch, and I will dig a ditch. If God's asked me to build an altar, I will build an altar. But I won't take responsibility for everybody else. I won't take responsibility for everybody else's emotions. I won't take responsibility for anybody else's response. I'll just, I'll just trust that, that God will do the things that only God can do. Is any of this making sense at all? I want to, um, and, and then I'm, I'm actually going to close quickly, but l- let me kind of land it here. I've really come to believe that, and if, if, maybe this will sound like an oversimplification for some of you, but like, I believe, in, I believe in prayer, and there's a lot that we could say about prayer. There are a lot of different kinds of prayer that are useful, that are valid, that I love, right? That we can, it's wonderful to pray the Psalms, and there are prayers of lament and mourning, and um, there, there are prayers of petition and intercession, and there's so many wonderful things that you can learn about prayer. But I've really come to believe that at the end of the day, prayer is always really about one thing and one thing only. And it's not, it, it's not complicated. No matter what kind of prayer it is, no matter where you're praying or when you're praying, I feel like the object is always the same. The, the, the focal point of prayer ultimately is always simply saying yes to God. That is all it is. Prayer ultimately is a way of saying yes to God. That is the whole point. It's the whole point. Ironically, I think some of what often keeps us from getting to the yes is that we're too uptight about it. We're too angsty about it. It would be like um, if I told you to fall in love with somebody. Now, fall in love with this person. The best way to uh, not fall in love with someone is to try too hard to fall in love with someone. I should fall in love with this person. I should fall in love with someone. I mean, you, you can't, you see what I'm saying? Like your own effort almost gets in the way. There has to, there, there's some things that you have to let happen to you. God is supposed to happen to us. We're supposed to let God happen to us. And sometimes, strangely enough, our own like gritting our teeth and being uptight and angsty about it is what keeps us from getting that release point to simply say yes. To simply say yes which is all God is ever after. Sometimes it feels like you've got to process through a lot of things to get to that yes. Sometimes it feels like you can get to it almost immediately, but the yes is the point. So for example, if, uh, if you have an especially busy day and you think to yourself, I should be doing some kind of morning devotions, but you're not doing that, rather than spending the rest of the day feeling bad and flagellating yourself because 
you didn't have your hour with God or whatever, I would far rather you get in the shower and say yes <laughs> or take that time on the drive to work to say yes because that's what God really wants anyway. Like, don't beat yourself up for what you haven't done. What the Father wants is for you to get to a place of saying yes, just saying yes to him, yes to his spirit. That's at the heart of all communion with God is the soul's saying yes. It is all that God is interested in. It's the only thing that God is interested in. So, which is, it's interesting to me how I increasingly find that often in my life, sometimes some of the people that I feel like have the most intimacy with the Lord are some of the least pious people. Uh, you know, in terms of like a lot of external practices and forms. See, I believe in the forms. I think, again, just like the Book of Common Prayer, that's a wonderful form. But the point is, I think sometimes with prayer, people do a lot better with it who don't overthink it, you know? Because what is prayer? If it's not being present to God, present to the moment, and saying yes, if you think too hard about it, if you analyze it too much, it, 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 it doesn't help. Imagine take again, I, I keep... I can't think of no other parallel but love. Imagine taking that kind of a clinical approach to like any other relationship. It just doesn't work. I should go on a date with you. I should be here with you. I ought to enjoy this dinner with you. It's like you just, <laughs> you overthink it instead of enjoying somebody else's company, right? That this is, it's so, it's just so not the nature of what God wants. So bringing this all around full circle, I hope it hasn't felt too rambly. I just really feel like the challenge for us this morning, I want, I'd love for you to just reflect on this even for a moment. What, in what ways right now does your life with God resemble Baal worship? Does it look like worship of Jesus or does it look like worship of, 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 of like this pagan deity? Is it frenzied? Is, is there lots of noise and activity or is there, is, is there quietness? You know? um, what, what would it look like to come apart from some of that noise? Man, I just think for some of us, there's just so much noise and so much chatter in our heads. What, doesn't it sound amazing to get still and quiet enough for all that to actually like shut down and just to be able to pray a prayer of simple trust and then actually believe that the fire of God will fall on us and consume us? I mean, doesn't that sound wonderful? Like to not have to work it up? It's, it's possible. I really believe that. But it involves quiet. It involves waiting. It involves simple trust. There's something about that image of, and I know Hebrews talks about how our God is a consuming fire. That's just so, it's so moving to me. The fire of God that comes and consumes everything. Not our effort, just a way of saying yes to that fire. Saying yes, to use sort of the opposite analogy, to saying yes to the river of God. Just, a way, just getting out of our own way. I, I, I really believe that for many of us. I, I I believe in evil. I believe there's a force of evil. I believe in a devil. But I truly believe for, that for so many of us, like, the devil even really isn't our greatest problem. It's we are our own worst enemy, just getting ourselves out of the way. <laughs> Much better. Like, you don't, you don't need to bind everything and cast everything out and exercise everything. Quiet the noise. Create the space to say yes. That, that's, that's what we need. Let's, let's, let's take a few moments just to pray now. Lord, we... What, close your, keep your eyes closed for just a moment. Let me just encourage you with this, even before laying into that more. I just really want this to be more than the transitional prayer into communion. I, I really want us to practice something of what we're hearing this morning. That we're, uh, I've just, I don't know. I've thought all, all week about people whom uh, would be here today 
And for some of you, this is the first moment uh, in the last week that there's been any sort of quiet at all. I'm not here to condemn you for any of that. I, I just want to encourage you to, to settle down. Just encourage you to slow down and let this, be, let this moment be what it is. Let this moment be what it's supposed to be. Let the spirit and presence of God silence the other voices, the voices of the accuser, the voices of others' expectations, the voices of your, the voice even of your own expectation. Just speak silence over all that in the name of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that in the quiet of this, of this space, you would teach us again just how to get to the yes. Jesus, you taught us that when we pray, not to pray as the Gentiles do, heaping up empty phrases, thinking that they will be heard because of their many words. You said instead that our Father knows what we need before we ask. So, Lord, this morning we are not, um, we're not trying to get the formula right. We're not trying to get the words right because we know that you already know us and you already know what we need. So we just settle into your presence and settle into your love. I would just invite you, whatever you is comfortable for you, I don't even care what this looks like, but if there's a comfortable way to put yourself in a posture of receiving. Maybe that's lifting your hands like you're receiving a gift. Um, whatever it kind of looks like, whatever is a posture for you of saying yes, whatever the posture of saying yes, just enter into this moment with me. Lord, we just surrender to you now, Spirit of God, Spirit of life, and we, we do say yes to you. We say yes to your spirit. We say yes to your peace. We say yes to your love. We're not grasping on to anything. We're not grasping on to anybody. Just open our hands. We open our hearts and we say yes. And we ask, Spirit of God, that your fire would fall on us and in us. We ask that you would consume us. Fill the nooks and crannies and cracks. Fill the trenches with your love, with your peace, with your grace. Teach us, Lord, that we don't have to do anything to earn this or to work it up. Teach us, Lord, how to enter into just this simple, this simple yes of the heart. Stand with me, if you would. And one last thing we're going to do, I'm not trying to drag this thing out. It just feels like the right moment for such things. And even this idea of waiting on, on God and creating space for God. I just want to ask you, I'm not going to do an altar invitation. I'm not going to lay hands on anybody. But if this morning there's just a way in your life right now where you really need a touch from God in a way that feels urgent, um, there, there's, there's something going on in you right now that's bringing torment and pain. Maybe there's some inner healing that you need. Maybe there's healing for your body. Just any way right now that you just really need a touch from the Lord. You don't have to talk about it this morning anybody. I'd love it if you talk to somebody about it, but that's not what this moment is about. If you just really need a real particular touch from God in some area of your life right now, would you mind just lifting your hand where you are and leaving that up? It's like, just lift your hand. I mean, if I was out there, I'd lift my hand. I, I can think of three or four things where I need a real touch from the Lord right now. Keep those hands up for just a moment. I just want to ask the people around you, if you don't mind, just turn around and very gently lay a hand on the people. We, we, we're not going to bite, I promise. 
Um, nobody's going to take the moment here to show out or whatever. We just want to pray for each other. And could we, would you just lean into that with me right now? Lord, we just lift up your sons and daughters to you, many of whom are hurting for different reasons. Lord, some of them are dealing with just a tremendous amount of hurt and disappointment and disillusionment right now. Some are dealing with addiction right now. Some are dealing with heartbreak right now. Some are living so tired and depleted and depressed. Some are feeling lonely. Some are feeling used. Some are feeling left out. Some are just feeling so, so very tired. Pray that you would refresh them now, Lord. Pray that you would pour your love into them now, Lord. Pour out your spirit over them, Lord. I pray for waves of grace, waves of mercy, waves of love, waves of peace, waves of joy to just wash over them now. No effort, no striving. Waves of your love, Lord. Waves of your love. I pray for the warmth of God and the warmth of God's love to flow over your sons and daughters now, bringing healing, bringing hope, bringing calm, bringing quiet. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.